Welcome to Switchblade Sisters, where women get together to slice and dice our favorite action and genre films. I'm film critic April Wolf. Every week, I invite a new female filmmaker on, a writer, director, actor, producer, and we talk in depth about one of their fave genre films, maybe one that influenced their own work, perhaps surreptitiously, as today's guests are going to find out, uh, because today I'm very excited to have writer-director Christina Cho here with me. Hi, Christina. Hello. Um, For those of you who aren't as familiar with her work, please let me give you an introduction. Christina's the recipient of the HBO Access Directing Fellowship, the Roger and Chaz Ebert Foundation Fellowship, and the Sundance Film 2 Fellowship. She cut her teeth directing award-winning short films like I Am John Wayne, about an African-American boy who rides a horse to Coney Island to avoid going to his friend's funeral, and The Queen, about a Korean-American teenage outcast who fantasizes about about their prom night while working at their parents' dry cleaning business. Over the years, these short screened at Slamdance, Telluride, South by Southwest, and Aspen Film Festivals. And from there, she ventured into nonfiction with her four-part docuseries, Welcome to the DPRK. That's a personal portrait of North Korea, as seen through Christina's smuggled still camera, stealthily set to the video capture mode, when she visited the country a few years ago. Welcome to the DPRK is currently streaming online. This year, Christina's debut feature, Nancy, premiered at Sundance and won the Waldo Salt Best Screenplay Award, then had a theatrical release in the spring. The film stars Andrea Riseborough as a woman who thinks she may have been abducted as a kid and who introduces herself to the parents as their probable child. Uh, The cast is rounded out by Steve Buscemi, Ann Dowd, John Leguizamo, and Jake Smith Cameron. And the film has already been added to the Best of 2018 so far list from IndieWire Village Voice in the AV Club. And now it's about to be coming out on VOD. Is that correct, Christina? Yep. Okay. On 9-11. Don't ask me why. Oh, that's an interesting release date. <laughs> I know. To I commemorate know for your why. first feature. Um, so, Christina, today... <laughs> You chose to talk about a movie called Let the Right One In, a mm-hmm. Swedish flick. Mm-hmm. Um, can you tell me a little bit about why uh, that's one of your fave films, why you chose it? Um, well, it's funny because when you said, you know, I had to pick a genre film, you know, I had a couple more sort of obvious choices that would connect back to Nancy. But yeah. I started thinking about, well, what else do I like? And I remember always Really, I remember seeing the Let the Right One In and being really impacted by it. And I actually hadn't seen it since it first came out. Mm -hmm. So what was it, 2008 maybe? Uh, Yeah, that one was 2008, I believe. Right. So I literally haven't seen it since then. So I watched it just last week for this podcast and was like kind of amazed by what I, you know, what I remembered from the film, what I didn't. Yes. And what I... I think what I actually latched onto was that it was for me like this really sweet love story of these two outcast kids and that it happened to be like this genre vampire movie, but that there was so many other things about it that I thought were atypical of that, like what you would expect out of a vampire movie. And, you know, I, this time watching around was like just interested. It was just noticing all these things that I don't remember yeah. about it, you know, and it but was. But potentially could have worked their way into your psyche as well. Yeah. Like, even if you don't remember it. Yeah, 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 definitely. I mean, I think that's the power of like a movie is that, you know, it becomes part of your memory and it becomes, you know, you attach yourself to like certain parts of the movie and that are have all, probably everything to do with your subconscious and. You know, you don't even know why. Yeah. That's one of the things that we find on the show, actually, is that directors who don't work in genre film will pick a, a genre film and then rewatch it and say, oh, 
this right. did have an effect on me. Clearly, I didn't realize that it did. But, you know, it's it's all pieces that fit into the whole of your aesthetic. Yeah. You know? Yeah. For those of you who haven't seen Let the Right One In, today's episode will give you some spoilers, but that shouldn't stop you from listening before you watch. As always, my motto is that it's not what happens, but how it happens that makes a movie worth watching. Still, if you would like to watch Let the Right One In, you can do that right now and we'll wait. Okay, you're back. So let me give you a quick synopsis just in case you forgot what the movie you watched was about. Written by John Linquist and uh, is that how you say Link? I don't know. There's like a Q and a V next to each other. Linquist. Link. I'm gonna say it. Yeah. Okay. Written by John Linquist and directed by Tomas Alfredson. Let the right one in. Tells the story of Oscar, a bullied 12 year old boy who dreams of revenge while cutting out newspaper clippings of grisly murders. One night, he meets Eli, a girl his age who's moved into the apartment next door. The two begin a friendship, sharing messages with Morse code on the wall between them. Eli's caretaker, Hacken, however, requests that, and again, I'm saying I don't know how to pronounce that correctly. I apologize. Requests they end the friendship. Meanwhile, Hacken is out on the snowy nights, killing locals to drain their blood. See, Eli is a vampire, and Hacken is her familiar, um, and he's having a hell of a time getting the blood back to her is the problem, though. He's thwarted multiple times, once with a witness, before he corners a teenage boy unsuccessfully and has to defigure his own face with acid to protect Eli's identity. Eli learns Hacken's been taken to the hospital, so she visits him. With nothing left to give Eli, Hacken offers her his neck to feed, and then he falls out the window and dies. Eli is all alone now, so she goes to Oscar and stays with him. Oscar gets the confidence to stand up to his bullies. Eli feeds on a girl who becomes a vampire and who then kills herself when she realizes what she's become. Oscar finds out Eli is a vampire and angrily angrily confronts her for being a murderer. But Eli's got a different idea about the whole thing. She believes that the two actually have similar natures and she... You know, she might not be wrong. They might be the same thing. Eli gets the chance to exact revenge on Oscar's bullies, and that solidifies their connection. And the two, you know, go on to live, well, we'll Happily see, maybe after. yeah, maybe for eternity. <laughs> 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 so that's it in a nutshell. Um, but it doesn't cover the tone or all of the beautiful things that make this movie worth watching. Um, but one of the things that you mentioned in your explanation of why you chose it is also one of the reasons why Alfredson wanted to adapt it from the novel. Um, because it does tell a story that it is an unsentimental about bullying and it is unsentimental about the love. But it, it is a love story first and foremost, a romance that happens to be about vampires. Mm-hmm. And that's it's a nice kind of um, twist on on that genre convention, I would say. Yeah, I think it's um, it's when I rewatched it, I was kind of also like struck by how it's pretty dark, you know. And yeah. I think uh, it's funny because like, you know, you could watch Nancy and maybe you, you would say the same thing, or you yeah. know, it, it was something that was like I didn't really like realize what the connections could be, but it's definitely I think there's some similarities with like. You know, two. It's a. Un, it's kind of like unrequited love too. It's like mm-hmm. these two people that can't really be together, and but they really love each other. And I always would. You know, whenever I talk about the relationship of Nancy and Ellen, is that it's kind of this like love story between them, and, and you know they can never really be together. Mm-hmm. You know, this mother and daughter figure. Yeah, and and, and Ellen is the character of this potential mother. Right. That Nancy had when she she discovers that she may have been kidnapped. 
Right. And and so they develop this this very tenuous but beautiful relationship together. Yeah. What could have been. Right. And like Steve Buscemi's character is kind of the third wheel in my <laughs> Yeah. In my opinion. But like, you know, anyway, I just I just was sort of struck by watching this film. And sort of, you know, I think what I was attracted to about it was that it was this, like, you know, unlikely, unrequited sort of love story. Mm-hmm. And, like, yes, the the vampire, you know, aspect of it is sort of, like, secondary. Um, and, you know, that, that, that it's really about these two kids that really kind of need each other. And yeah. they're sort of trying to figure out how to be together when it's sort of impossible. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, but they both, you know, Eli and Nancy both have one person who kind of connects them to the real world. And they both lose that person. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, uh, Nancy's mother, uh, you know, passes away. And played by Ann Dowd. Played by yes. the wonderful yes, and the cutting Ann Dowd. Amazing Ann Dowd. Uh, and then, of course, uh, uh, Eli's familiar passes. And, you know, how do you go out into the world and kind of put yourself out into it Right, when that one connection that you have yeah. is gone? It's weird that there's more of a connection to this film than I ever thought. I know. Watching it again, I was just like, oh, no shit. No way. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> and then, I mean, there's a lot of, you know, aesthetic and interesting. The snow. Yeah, yes. yeah. And I definitely I definitely want to talk about that because the look of this film um uh you know was quite an achievement for them. Um it also took its toll on the cast and crew. Um Alfredson said, quote, Stockholm isn't as cold as people might think it would could be. Only every five or every six years there's a proper winter, but we had to have to um it had to be cold and snow, so we shot it partially in the very north of Sweden in a town called Lulea. All the exteriors are or nearly all the exteriors because of uh, in Sweden, winter is part of the year that forces us to live with perpetual darkness, and that is what makes us stronger. So that, that's one of the reasons why they want to do all the exterior shot there. Um, talking about, you know, like mm. suffering and strength and like being in the dark and being in the cold and the snow. And, you know, he's been quite frank about what it was like to shoot in the snow because um, it was something like negative 33 degrees oh, where they God. were. I know. It's like ungodly. I have nothing to complain about then. <laughs> right? But I, I mean, like, but there is still a lot to complain about. You know, the snow is necessary for the tone of darkness and light. And so they did what they had to do. But, you know, whenever a director chooses to shoot in a wintry landscape, it is something that I take notice of because it is more difficult to do. And I think that we, you know, sometimes we forget that. But it is one of the reasons why you don't see that many stories mm-hmm. told yeah. in the snow and the cold. Because yeah. you don't want to put people through this. No. I, and I definitely, like, had never planned. Nancy was never supposed to be shot in the winter. And we, you know, set, it was like there was a key turning point scene where, um, the hunting scene, where it was supposed to be like a something that happens, an accident that happens at the beach. Mm -hmm. And so that was always like, it was supposed to be like a summer, maybe early fall movie, like never, never, never supposed to be winter. Okay. And so what happens with like indie film, like Mm -hmm. you don't control a lot of things and uh, you don't control when the financing comes together, especially. And you don't control like your actors, your main actor schedule. Mm -hmm. And so what happened was that basically when we had to shoot, it was, it had to be January. And I remember like two years before that, sort of like I would always block off winters like, well, if we can't get the financing by then, we're going to have to wait till spring because I just can't. And then ironically, we finally everything comes together 
Andrea Riseborough's like insanely busy schedule was like, okay, and you know, financing everything came to be it has to be January. Mm-hmm. And so I had and actually it was like kept pushing where it was like there was a point where it was a fall movie and yeah. I, you know, I would just rewrite the scene every time it got pushed. It was like, <laughs> okay, there's going to have to be, uh, you know, this incident in, you know, a kayak or whatever it was. And so I just sort of went with it. And, and now, you know, when I see the film and when people comment on, like, how the snow sort of, like, added this tone that's very, like, sort of eerie and melancholic eerie, yeah. and sort of they can't imagine the movie without it being snow or winter. Mm-hmm. And I, I kind of can't either. And it's just ironic sort of, you know, mm-hmm. serendipitous uh, things that happen when you're trying to make a movie and, like, some things you just are totally out of your control. Mm-hmm. And it's it's kind of like a good lesson to just sometimes you just can't control everything and it's not a bad thing. Like, you have to sort of just you know, work with it. And and a lot of times it's for a reason that things come together that way. But yeah, in this movie, it was kind of striking too to see how the winter and that landscape really brought a tone to the film that I think it was necessary. Yeah. You can't, there's no way that you could shoot with the right one in without snow. Yeah. It's, yeah, the landscape, the atmosphere, everything about it. Um, And we will, I'm going to take a quick break, but we will continue with a few more snow tidbit details because it is very difficult to shoot in that to get a specific look. So one quick break and we'll be right back. Hello, listeners of Maximum Fun. I want to tell you about our newest podcast that tells you all about the truth of the flat earth. Have you been looking out over the horizon and you've been thinking, wait a minute, this doesn't look round. I've been lied to my whole life. What is NASA doing with $52 million dollars a, a day? day? Uh, uh, come on. We explode the myths. Just kidding. We're Ono, Ross, and Carrie, and we investigate extraordinary claims. That's right. We investigate extraordinary claims firsthand. We go undercover in fringe groups. We get alternative medicine treatments. And we hang out with people who have unusual beliefs, like flat earthers, 9-11 truthers. We do ghost investigations. We've joined Scientology. And we got baptized in the Mormon church. If it goes bump in the night, then so do we. (laughs) Hmm. Why don't you check out Ono, Ross, and Carrie at MaximumFun.org? Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here today joined by Christina Cho, and we're talking about Let the Right One In. So speaking of snow, Alfredson made this really good point that achieving specific cinematic looks with a snowy landscape can become extremely difficult. Um, So for his film, he was seeking a kind of magical, mystical atmosphere, and that required kind of fighting against the dull look of snow. And he said, quote, snow shots can be very flat and ugly. I achieved the right color for the snow by having all the lighting come from a very far distance, from a 40-foot distance specifically above, so it is very soft. And we invented a name for it called spray lighting um so he wow. i know he like had this whole thing worked out but he he needed that to imbue these snow drifts with a lot of shadows and texture and to make them sparkle at times because it does have to be kind of like a mystical wonderland yeah i do remember the the sparkly um what's it called icicles yes yeah. But I mean it it is so difficult to light that and if you're you're also thinking like you need to set those lights up 
in very heavy snow drifts. Yeah. Um, fighting against wind. Yeah. Fighting against every element that you that you can imagine, like water, mm-hmm. just anything that could hurt a camera or a piece of equipment. <laughs> yeah. It's all right there. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because he sounds like he actually had control. He was he was. Uh, it was purposeful. Yeah. Um, the snow landscape, whereas for us, it was just like, this is what's happening and you're going to have to film in this circumstance. Yeah. And so the main, one of the main scenes where Nancy and Ellen are walking to the lake in the snow, that was not supposed to be a snowy blizzardy day. It was supposed to be just them walking. And I remember freaking out about it, like for some reason, just obsessing over like, why would people take a walk in a blizzard? It makes no sense. <laughs> Would they do that and then have a conversation? It just like, but I could, I could not stop. I had to shoot it. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, we just like made it work. And it's, it is one of the scenes where people sort of like are struck by that, the, by the snow and sort of the, the sort of monologue that she gives. And yeah. The day that Brooke went missing, do you know why she let go of my hand? She saw a kitten in the pet store. She had wanted one for Christmas. As soon as she saw it, she ran right off. She just slipped right out of my head. When I got to the pet store, I couldn't find her. I looked all over the mall, and I kept going back and back to the pet store. She was gone. But It's very interesting to see characters kind of persevering or pushing through the elements to yeah to go outside and to... yeah but it definitely made filming like logistically very it's at times difficult like there was a sort of the last scene where she's we had we're shooting on a process trailer and it's andrea's sort of her character's most emotional scene mm-hmm. and no one told i mean when you're shooting on a process trailer you're outside of the car and, and can you tell people what a process trailer is? Yeah. Sure. So a process trailer is that when the car is on top of like a trailer and it's like dragging, it's like you're pretending like you're driving, but you're not, the car's not actually on the road. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we had to, <laughs> and it's like winter. So I'm like outside of the truck, you know, in front of it, leading yeah. it, you know, with the monitor. And, you know, when it's that cold, Basically, all the batteries start to die, which nobody <laughs> nobody warned me about. Like, literally, it would be like, first the camera battery goes down, then the, like, lighting battery goes mm-hmm. down, then the microphone battery. Like, everything. Then the walkie stopped working, and it was insane. Like, it was – and, you know, Andrea is supposed to be, like, kind of crying in the scene, and I'm, like, trying to talk to – I mean, it was really, like, insanity. Um, but it was, you know, we just – get through it and <laughs> you just sort of like when I don't know when you're making a movie I think it's you know you're warring against the elements whether mm-hmm. they're snow or time you know time's never on your side it's yeah. just like a race <laughs> I mean it gives me so much more um, kind of appreciation for what Alfredson is able to do in the north of Sweden mm-hmm. um, I mean all the things you're saying about batteries dying everything and, and everyone's cold and you're still trying to get performances out of people yeah um, focusing on the actual art that's happening which just seems like impossible at yeah. that point yeah especially these to... kids they're like oh, yeah. really amazing child actors that I think I read that they were looking for them for like a year 
They were. Yeah. Yeah. And in fact, um, the casting for this film is definitely really interesting. It it did take a year for them to find it because Alfredson wasn't just looking for them singularly. Mm. Um, he was matching them up in pairs and trying to find two young people who had um, these matching but polar opposite kind of qualities to them. Mm. Uh, so he said, quote, before we started shooting, dramatists asked me, who is the main character, the boy or the girl? And I would say they are both the same character, the light and the dark side of the same person. The girl is half Iranian, half Swedish. The time um, the boy does not win your love in two seconds. He needs a little time to gain our love. When I cast, I try to find out what kind of animal every actor is. I would say this character <laughs> is a fox, so I look for the fox quality. Wow, and his, that's so cool. He thinks that casting is 70% of the job. Yeah, I would agree. You would agree. Oh, yeah. I would maybe even make it more than 70%, <laughs> depending on the project. But I I mean, I, um, you know, I I had an amazing, you know, experience with all my actors and kind of had the dream cast of actors. And, you know, but I before this in all my short films had always casted um, not what they call non-professional actors. Like yeah. People that didn't, like, including my mom was in my first short film. Yeah, go mom. You know, and so to go from that to like suddenly just, you know, I'm direct, you know, Ann Dowd and Jay Smith Cameron and Steve Buscemi is on my set. And, you know, like John Leguizamo, like people that have collectively and Andrea, who I think is, you know, one of the best actresses of her generation like I just I you know I was really blessed with that cast but also just it was like a new thing for me to be you know uh working with like people that were sort of icons in their own you know in their own right and had you know collectively between all of them had been on like a million sets you know more mm-hmm. than I had um but yeah I mean casting you know when we it's funny because uh, you know Andrea Riseborough was attached very early on like you know, more maybe like four years ago. And I had seen her in all these films like back to back and her filmography was just like mind blowing. It was like, oh, she's like Margaret Thatcher in one movie. And then she's, you know, an IRA spy. And then, you know, she's Mm -hmm. in Oblivion with Tom Cruise, like literally, you know, and she's famous for being a chameleon, but also like her technical skills, like amazing. But anyway, so I casted her first. And um, when Jay Smith Cameron and Steve Buscemi came on board. We had our sort of first meeting and it was really like, you know, amazing to, you know, have them. They were just staring at Andrea like, oh, you know, Andrea looks like Steve's son. And Andrea looks like Jay was like, Andrea looks like me when I was younger. Mm -hmm. And obviously I wanted, you know, in my mind, I wanted those parents. You don't know if they could be her real biological parents in the movie or not. I, ideally, it was like it would be amazing if she looked like she could actually be their daughter. And it was another sort of serendipitous thing that happened where they, she does like to me, like I think she has like, you know, Steve's eyes and it's definitely plausible that, you know, she could be their daughter. Yes. So I do, you know, I think a lot of casting is like uh, the director's choice and sort of you know, that's part of directing is is making those choices. And then I think in my case, I was also sort of lucky. It was like a, a, a lucky sort of uh, coming together of these people, you yeah. know. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about some of the things that um, 
Alfredson left out of this adaptation that mm, he did yeah, of this movie. Yeah, I would love to know that. Um, because the book that he had, that they adapted it from, they had a million different story threads, um, but he, which uh, some of the other story threads were um, explored in the American remake. Um, so, but he and the author settled on this particular love story with the kids. That's the big one that they wanted to take. Um, but the thing that they completely left out of it were these overtones of like sexual assault and perversion, which I was like, thank you. Um, He said, quote, the biggest thing we left out was the character of uh, Haken, the older blood supplier for Eli. He was an outspoken pedophile in the novel. So that really gave another tone to the whole thing. Wow, That's too often used uh, that being sexual perversion or assault that's too often used as say an emotional special effect without taking responsibility for what that really is it's a really complicated thing to debate on screen i think so that would have disturbed the story a lot to have that and i honestly i mean like can you imagine so dark too too much i mean this is too much it's a dark movie but having like haken be an outspoken pedophile yeah can you imagine that because it's funny when I, you know, was watching it, I, I just sort of like read him as like a father yeah. figure and mm-hmm. actually not at all got a pedophilia like. But then I was um, reading about it later and, uh, you know, realized, oh, you know, his and maybe this is a spoiler, but like, you know, he was, you know, Eli or not Eli, uh, Oscar could mm-hmm. be taking his place and she's looking for someone to take care of. Cause she, she could, you know, because she's a vampire, she doesn't age, you know, could have mm-hmm. met this guy, uh, you know, when he was also like 12. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's something I never really I thought never about. I never picked that up on, until I read about it. And it was like, so basically they were saying like, you know, uh, yeah, like she could be looking for her next caretaker and Oscar you know what I mean? Yeah. And um, in a way, and they were talking about how, like, um, it's like this love story. It's like maybe it, it, it also, like, goes transcends gender because there's that scene where you see her mm-hmm. that she doesn't have, like, genitalia yeah. or whatever. And yeah. It's just really interesting because I never really thought about it. I just sort of... I just sort of, like, read him as, like, her father. Yeah. Like, her literal father. But yeah. then I'm like, oh, no, but she can't have a father. She's a vampire. Like God knows. I mean, I don't think we know how old she is even, you know, like, there's no... Right, because she's 12 forever. Yeah, there's right? no discussion, really, about her. She know. could be a thousand-year-old, 12-year-old. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Which is its own thing that, I mean, I love vampire movies that explore that. Uh, Catherine Bigelow's Near Dark does that, too. Where you just have a very young oh, really? vampire that's just like, what? And, you know, it's also Interview with a Vampire, which is one of my favorite movies. Um, yeah. But I, I think that what Alfredson was saying, though, is, is very, um, it's very astute that he's talking about how people put these kinds of storylines in without the responsibility of what that means, how it comes off, how they have to explore it. It's almost like mm-hmm. like it, they're just, you know, oh, here's some story texture. Here's some emotional. Yeah. What did he call it? It was emotional something. Emotional special effect. That's interesting. Which I think is really, you know, because it does evoke immediately a certain kind of uh, feeling, you mm-hmm. know, because you, you tense up. You just like you don't you don't like how it feels, you know, so it's automatically kind of doing that work for you as a, you know, it's kind of a lazy mm-hmm. device in, yeah. in many respects. Well, I wonder if it's because, like, it would be too many things in the pot or if it's actually just, like, just pedophilia in general. Like, in, I mean, that's just, like, a really dark subject that I don't really know. If... You have to spend the whole movie to, to really yeah talk about 
what that and like, means in relation to the story. And it's also very dark. Nobody really, I mean, I'm like, where do you really see that in movies? Like, I feel like it's one of those topics that, like, you just don't really want to talk about. No, no. I don't want to really watch a movie about no. that. You know, and it detracts from a love story because this is supposed to be an innocent love story, yeah. right? And I think that it's just a very smart move to say that anything that doesn't serve that purpose is something that needs to go. Yeah, I think that, I mean, it's already sort of like a dark film, I think, by making that, you know, uh, that element in there would just mm. push it over the edge. Yeah. And I, I mean, I'm I was really happy when I was watching Nancy for instance though that so you have a very complicated woman. Yeah. It's a really complex kind of dark woman who has a, a lot of kind of personality um, defects and things. She's got that she's, some issues. She's got a lot of issues. <laughs> um, and she doesn't always necessarily live in reality. But I feel like if, when I see a character like that and it's not in the hands of a woman, very often it's explained away that she's like that because of sexual assault. Mm. Interesting. something that I would expect, having seen so many movies that that's kind of the going rate. Mm-hmm. I'm like, it's just this. Yeah. It's just this one key and then everything would have right. been okay. Yeah. Um, so to me, it's refreshing that she's just fucked up yeah. in a general way from, you know, weird relationship with her mother. Yeah. Um, the world being what it is. Yeah. Her, her not having a lot of opportunity or money or anything like that. Yeah. I mean, we definitely wanted to have different elements inform her uh, pathos, you know, and sort of like where these um, fictions sort of come from. And I think it's it is complicated, even though, there, you know, there is a very vague like, but it, I don't think you always pick up on it, like sort of sexual abuse backstory that is hinted at very yeah. Sl- subtly. Yeah. But it's not. But it's, it's not the main yeah. yeah, it's not the main cause of sort of her pathos. Like it could, you know, in like one of the sort of like uh, stories she tells, the North Korea one, like that's actually, you know, that one was sort of based on just the need for attention, you know, yeah. and like, you know. Yeah, she makes things up. She's kind of a habitual liar in, in certain respects. Yeah. Or like a... There's like another word people use, like fabulous. It's like a more like optimistic word about what she's doing. It's like, oh, she's a fabulous. And I feel like I feel like Nancy would like diagnose herself as like a fabulous. Yeah, it sounds like fabulous, but it's not. Yes, I think that she probably would too. Yeah, it's like that's her whole mo is like just like twisting things into. Yeah, you know. And that's, I mean, I think, you know, like the the subtle kind of like sexual abuse background, like that's something that it is very subtle and it's not, but it's just one tiny thing of a whole. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. And it's not what we would call the emotional special effect where you're like, ah, I immediately feel sympathy for this person because of what she's been through. Right. You know? Yeah. I mean, also we, you know, also there's this whole idea of likability in female characters, I think was something that Andrea and I talked a lot about. And, like, while we while we did definitely, you know, especially in the writing of it and, you know, the way we would talk about it, like, we had empathy for this character. We also didn't want to, like, shy away from the things that mm-hmm. were, you know, flawed and dark about her. And, you know, because of this sort of you know, overall vague pressure to make, you know, your character, quote unquote, likable. Like Mm -hmm. I had never really thought that sort of expectation was fair or interesting. It's like, well, you know, 
any of the like Greek or Shakespearean, you know, figures. Like you would never ask them to be likable, you know. No. It's like I don't know how we got to that sort of topic of like let's make these people likable. I mean, usually it's women. Um, yeah, let's be honest. <laughs> but I like thinking about Nancy as an emotional vampire. Yeah, you no, totally. I mean? Actually, I I just when as soon as you said that, I just realized there is a weird vampire quality to Nancy. She's also very pallid, you mm-hmm. know. It's I uh, I just I'm I'm very I love how these two movies are yeah it's shaping so together. Odd that it did. you were like very affected by this movie. You did not know that <laughs> so much so I didn't watch it for ten years. <laughs> <laughs> no, right? You're like ah, I'll just put this aside. Um, something that Alfredson brings up often in interviews with regard to this movie is the idea of quote talking through silence. Um, he said Swedes are very quiet sometimes, and not answering a question is also a way of answering a question, or turning your back to somebody is also a form of communication. So that is something quite special in Swedish, I would think. The idea of silence and the things that you suddenly hear in a silent community. Mm-hmm. And I I really enjoy kind of like his um, his obsession with silence and how mm-hmm. he's trying to recreate that. And that's one of the reasons why this movie is also set in the past, because, you know, it's it's a much quieter time. There's no cell phones, no nothing. Everything feels very calm, very quiet. Um, and you really start to trust your actors though if you're having them convey all of these emotions just by body movements or facial movements that's something i mean especially for children that seems to take i can't imagine Mm -hmm. you know like okay there's no dialogue you just have to like act or move in a certain way that conveys all of these emotions and shifting um uh, plots yeah this is it's amazing yeah i mean it's funny because there's another similarity that i didn't really realize this is sort of like style of um yeah i mean i think i think american i mean maybe this is a cultural thing too of like american i feel like americans want to always fill up the empty space and like silence is sort of like always sort yeah. of like let's just fill up the silence like we cannot ever have silence and like the one thing i think people have said about nancy you know that yeah there is uh there is a quality to it that's and and this is maybe just more my uh, taste is that I, you know, or especially for this kind of film, like I, especially with actors, like, I don't know, I, I feel like if anything feels false, you know, I, mm-hmm. I it's just like very distracting for me. And so there was a lot of times on set where, you know, I was cutting lines as I was hearing them, you know, because it felt like, you know, this scene didn't need that much you know, mm-hmm. verbal expression. Like if we can, I mean, I'm always a believer of like, if you can show, not tell. Um, and, you know, th- that was definitely something that happened a lot where, um, yeah, you know, we would cut lines sometimes. Mm-hmm. It's definitely in like the editing, there were lines that were cut. And I think a lot of the movie lives in these sort of like pregnant silences or, you know, uh the ambiguity of someone's amb- uh, intention, yeah, you know, is I'm thinking of... that there's some scenes at the table, yeah, where a lot Steve, of table scenes, like Steve Buscemi's just character, he's like not saying anything, but he's just like looking <laughs> back and forth between them all. There's like there's a lot of things happening with him, and he doesn't get as much dialogue no. as the other characters, yeah, but he's definitely like a 
like the hinge pin on a lot of this stuff. Yeah, he's the voice of, I always feel like he's the voice of reason. He's like the audience is sort of uh, psyche. It's yeah. just like, what the hell is like, going on? Saying, <laughs> saying with his eyes that something is really fucked up. <laughs> yeah. You could launch a thousand ships with Buscemi eyes. <laughs> I feel like that should be a, I should make that shirt. You should. I mean, maybe get permission from him or whatever, but. I don't think he would like You could just sell it on Cafe Press or whatever. <laughs> Etsy. Yes. <laughs> don't tell his manager. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit about some of the inspirations that, um, that he had, uh, Alfredson had when he was making this. But we're going to take another quick break. We'll come back and talk a little bit about that. Hi, everybody. I'm Justin McElroy. And I'm Dr. Sydney McElroy. Every week, we release a medical history podcast called Sawbones. We go over the history of the dumbest, grossest, weirdest stuff humans have been doing to each other since the dawn of mankind. But it's a funny show. But it's also so disgusting and stomach-turning, you won't believe it. But it's also, like, <laughs> funny. It's funny. It is the wildest, grossest, nastiest stuff you can imagine. It's a real hoot. It's called Sawbones, and we release it every week on iTunes, wherever podcasts are sold, and right here on MaximumFun.org. Welcome back to Switchblade Sisters. I'm April Wolf, and I'm here joined today by Christina Cho, and we're talking about Let the Right One In. Um, so... Tomas Alfredson studied a lot of Renaissance painters to prepare for this film. Uh, he said, quote, there is a lot to learn from the old masters with how they treat eyes. Hmm. Ah, I'm tying oh. it in again. There's an artist called uh, Hans Holbein who made fantastic portraits of people in the mid-1500s. And there's a very famous portrait of a young British pr prince. It's a close-up and he has a red robe and a crown on his head. And he is looking below the viewer, which is really, really spooky. I have worked very actively with the eyes in this film, with eyes not seeing each other, with eyes out of the eye line. So it's a lot about eyes that makes a scary, creepy feeling. Wow. I did not know that. It's I, I, interesting. It's very interesting, right? Yeah. Like, he was focused very intensely. It's one of the reasons why I think he um, uh, found that one actress to play Eli, because her eyes are quite expressive. Yeah. You know, very big, kind of brown and and uh, inquisitive eyes. Yeah. No, I was actually struck this time watching it um, by the casting of those kids, like... That they're so, um, you know, they're not the – and I think, you know, I, I have this too with my casting like, you know, in my shorts when I cast the sort of non-professional actors or kids. Like I really like don't like the kind of kid actors that seem very slick or like, you know, yeah. they've been they, – they've gone through training, you know, yeah. whereas these kids – and like they're, you know, also meant to be outcasts and, you know um, – sort of not the like popular kids in school and yeah so whereas all the training kind of teaches you to be like the popular Disney yeah kid. yeah always smiling you know but these kids really yeah I mean I always and I think maybe I have a similar aesthetic with like actors like I really you know I, I remember telling my casting director like for Finding Nancy you know i that I just wanted an actor that you could, like, watch reading a phone book and still be sort of fascinated. Mm -hmm. And that's, like, 
you know, beyond a sort of skill or craft that's just like sort of there's just some people that that the camera absorbs like every little minutia of what's going on in their face. Mm -hmm. And I think um, these kids have that, you know, sort of quality of that. They're very watchable. Um, Yeah. So I I don't know if I, I sort of like really connected with like the those kids and like the casting of it's yeah it's it is 70 that's where you see like that is 70 percent of the the directing yeah i mean yeah if it takes a year it takes a year yeah i'll veer off into cgi for a second Mm -hmm. let me just and i'll I will tie this back together, so just trust me. <laughs> but um, so Alfredson was really subtle about the CGI effects that he used, um, and though there were fifty different shots with CGI, really, yeah, there's at least fifty. But if you look at it, you're you're not seeing them. Mm-hmm. Um, he said, "quote CGI is a fantastic toolbox to use, but it seems like uh, almost everyone is using it too much. If there's a car explosion, it seems like the car has to explode for three minutes and has to be the biggest car explosion you've ever seen. You can do so much with those effects in a subtle way." For instance, changing the size of the eyes by 10%. Just make them 10% smaller and nobody could tell what you have done. But it's really spooky when when someone suddenly has littler, smaller eyes. In one scene, they were bigger and so on. People cannot really pinpoint it. If you make a car explosion for four minutes, everyone will know what's fake and why. But they won't know with the eyes. Isn't that crazy? Wait, I don't understand what he did with the eyes. He like, would just like digitally make someone's eyes ten percent smaller or ten percent larger. Or some, this is insane. That's this what is the CGI boggling was. my mind. Isn't it the eyes? But he was really obsessed with the eyes. He was. That's but I insane. love that it's so unnerving. But you wouldn't be able to pinpoint no. it. And if I look at that. And I rewatch it knowing that I I understand why something feels off, but it's this really cool um, way for filmmakers to just visually signify that that you should feel uncomfortable. Yeah. And I love that. Wow. That is unbelievable. I feel like I want to steal that trick. Do it. He's put it out in the open. I'm going to put pajami in my next movie and just all about like zooming in on it. Ten percent bigger, ten percent smaller. Just have someone like, like digitally, just like, or face with like one Buscemi eye. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's crazy because like we did definitely like zoomed in like the frame, you know. So mm-hmm. like there are certain close-ups that are like closer than they were actually framed. But like I have never even thought about uh, doing that to someone's eyes. Like, and that it's interesting that you would. Yeah, I wonder if you do feel the overall fact of, like, why it's un- – because there's so many things about the movie that yeah. are unnerving. Yeah. You know, it's just multiple ways to play with psychology, you know, just to – Yeah, I've never heard of that ever, and, someone you know, doing that. What you're saying of the show, don't tell, you know, like, don't tell us necessarily in dialogue. Don't don't be so flashy about it. Is there ways that you can, you know, suddenly yeah. – Couch just zoom into their eyes. Get it? Yeah, get <laughs> in their 10%. eyes. But can you imagine there was like someone's job who, for like thirty <laughs> shots, was just digitally manipulating their right. eyes to make them look ten percent smaller or larger? Well, supposedly Beyonce has someone that literally digitally shaves off like her thigh fat oh. in the videos. Oh well. So you know, we should all have that. <laughs> you know, you should just put that in your writer. <laughs> I want a digital retoucher. Uh, let's talk a little bit about sound design. 
And let's talk about the sound design of silence. Um, Alfredson is a musician as well. Um, and who thinks a great deal about sound as um, he's directing. But he also considers sound to be equal to what he's visually framing. And for a film with so many spare and minimal shots, um, that meant that he would equally have to decide what he would be removing from the sound more than what he would be putting in it. Um, He said, quote, it's not so often that sound editors work framing out sounds, but if you put out specific sounds surrounded by silence, they really mean something. They really do something with your mind. You really have to be picky with what you put out to make those specific sounds. I really wanted to tell this as close as possible to the boy Oscar, to hear his own breathing, his own tongue moving in his mouth. We even had a microphone put very, very close to his eyes to hear his eyelids oh open and close. Oh my god, dude, this guy's obsessed with the eyes. He's obsessed. Um, and that's the thing, it's like, wow. it's something that he want he wants to have kind of a physical contact between the character and the audience you know like hearing the physicality yeah. of this person yeah but yeah, yeah like i really respect this guy now i really feel like i got I, I feel like a kinship with this guy it's, it's so interesting i mean like god we were just talking about the snowman the snowman is not let the right one in yeah. i don't know what happened with that movie maybe he was just done shooting in the snow he was like i have right. done this before i do not actually but the want snowman to do is this like again. a super hollywood movie right? it is yeah yeah it's not the kind of movie where you're going to be able to like take the time to put and he did tinker did he do tinker taylor spy after soldier spy yeah he did interesting another another movie that experiments with sound and silence yeah you know, i'm very sure quiet, there was very very, very meticulous um well yeah because i you know i had never really i mean i've always liked sound design was important but like for this because there was for nancy there was so much silence like i mm. actually had never been faced with that kind of challenge of like well how do you actually or even just like how do you even um make a sound of like yeah they're in a house that's like quiet but like you can't just have literal like quiet like no sound no because we we're, we get it sounds weird it's yeah it's boring it's not like what we hear in right. movies totally and so like we you know there was or you know i was trying to make ellen's house like a warm like this feeling of like warmness mm-hmm. inside the house and so that was like a real challenge of like, okay, how do we make something sound warm? Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. So we did these experiments, experiments where it was like, you know, first it was like, what about um, heartbeats? You know, and mm-hmm. like we and it, it just sounded weird. And then we actually ended up uh, using Paul the cat, his. Um, mm-hmm. You know, like the cat purring sounds. Yeah, like we used, um, and it, it, we ended up. I think our um, our sound designer went somewhere like <laughs> far, you know, upstate New York to get the specific cat and record the purring oh of the cat. Yeah, like purring of the cat to sort of, um, yeah, like make just sort of have this like bed of, you know, this warm, fuzzy type of um, atmospheric sound, which yeah. is so. And in in a way, it was like metaphorically made sense of like, you know, she has this attachment to Paul the cat and like this war. You know, it was just very weird that we got to that point of this is sort of because, you know, it's a real weird challenge to try to make sound out of um, you you need silence, but you need it to have texture. Mm -hmm. So I I identify with. Like the madness of being like, let's record the eyelids blinking. <laughs> like I, I, I get it. I get going that far. It's just kind of amazing when you hear another filmmaker, sort of, th- 
that our process and their like, process okay, and their obsession of I'm how not to get that this. insane. <laughs> no, the, the craft of filmmaking is a little insane. You know, it's the things insane. That you have to think about. It's not well, the level of detail. I think that sometimes people don't realize that goes, especially I think with your first feature or like a feature that like obviously he cared a lot about this movie and how he was going to it's not like the snowman probably mm-hmm. um it's not like a work for hire thing like yeah. you the the level of detail <laughs> that you know directors sort of go down these like rabbit holes it's it's kind of fascinating here yeah i i mean it's my favorite part of doing the research yeah. of this show yeah as we're wrapping up i want to uh leave us with one little quote to to kind of talk about and that is um, Alfred said, quote, part of being a filmmaker is to know that any decision is better than the wrong decision or the right decision. The set designer comes with a blue cloth or a green cloth. What is best? Um, what is best is just making a decision. You can always change the decision later. And I think that's kind of his approach to everything is just to say yes or no, have an opinion, do yeah. something more than anything. Yeah. You kind of have no choice when you're um, especially shooting independent film. <laughs> like everyone's asking you a million things and you have to – things won't move unless you just make a decision. And like I I agree because like sometimes things are – you don't know if they're going to work out. But like you have to make a decision to make things move, you yeah. know. And so like the, the snow that happens in the, the scene where Nancy and Ellen are walking around the lake – I if if I if it were up to me, I actually would have said like I don't want to shoot this in the blizzard, you know. And mm-hmm. actually, it's one of those things that like you know because I was kind of forced to say yes. It, it was one of the most magical sort of decisions that you know had to make. And um, I think that yeah, maybe there's a preconception of directors like that there were like this puppet master where I control every single thing, and it's mm-hmm. like yeah, you you are you're just sort of like. You're also just guiding like a million different ingredients into this meal, you know, and it's like constantly moving and shit, you know, people are asking you all kinds of like this. Do you like this Tupperware or that Tupperware? Like, <laughs> I mean, it's so minutia. The minutia is sort of mind boggling sometimes. <laughs> Someone did ask you which Tupperware. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, that one. <laughs> yeah, that one. You know, <laughs> yeah. no, definitely this one. This is a good decision. But it all has bearing on the final product. Yeah. No, I mean, some some decisions you don't even know that they will sort of how they will affect the final thing either. You know, like the snow. Yeah. The snow was a, a decision that was made for me. And I'm I'm glad for it, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sometimes you need something or someone to push you in the right direction. Yes. <laughs> so you can let the right one in. Like yes, that. that's such a great <laughs> ending. Thank you so much for joining me today, Christina. Thanks for having me. That was fun. And your your movie is going to be VOD, Nancy, um, on iTunes 9/11. on 9-11. <laughs> See, I, it's so hard to. So hard. I don't know why. It's so hard. It's, it's still, it's a great movie. Watch it. Thank you. And thank you for listening to Switchblade Sisters. If you like what you're hearing, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you do, we'll read it on air. If you're attending the Fantastic Fest Film Festival in Austin, Texas, you may just see Switchblade Sisters. I mean, you should try. I'll be there doing a live show in the highball inside the Alamo Drafthouse Theater Complex on September 22nd at 8 p.m. I'll be talking to director Amanda Kramer, whose new film Lady World will also be showing at Fantastic Fest. It sounds nuts. Uh, come and see the show and say hi to me and Casey. If 
if you want to let us know what you think of the show, you can tweet at us at SwitchbladePod or email us at SwitchbladeSisters at MaximumFun.org. Please check out our Facebook group. That's Facebook.com slash groups slash SwitchbladeSisters. Our producer is Casey O'Brien. Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. And this is a production of MaximumFun.org. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.